0: Ahorre tres puntos en Toyota of North Austin. Lleve a casa una nueva Tundra con financiamiento al 0% por 72 meses. Y compre en la tienda para asegurar nuestros especiales VIP. Vamos a superar cualquier oferta escrita de CarMax por mil dólares. Estamos renunciando a los pagos por seis meses en su préstamo o arrendamiento actual. Asegure el mantenimiento complementario por dos años. Además, no haga pagos por 90 días. 8400 Research Boulevard, Toyota of North Austin.com. Llama al 512-537-8373 para detalles.
1: Now, The Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim
2: Garrity. And welcome everyone to the Wednesday edition of The Three Martini Lunch along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, good, and bad martinis today. And Jim, let's start with good number one. It's our only Brett Kavanaugh-related story of the day, so we're slowly weaning ourselves off of that train wreck from the New York Times. In fact, this one talks about something important that's true that's in the uh, book by the New York Times reporters who really followed up the story about Kavanaugh over the weekend. CBS News reporter Jan Crawford actually reporting this critical fact that's not only in the book by the New York Times reporters, but also in the one that came out a few weeks ago by Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. Speaking publicly for the first time to The Times reporters, Ford's close friend Leland Kaiser, who Ford said was at the party, said she didn't believe Ford's account and that it just didn't make any sense. She also says she told the FBI that Ford's allies pressured her to say otherwise. Now, all four people that Ford identified as being at that high school party in the summer of 1982 have now said no such party occurred. And today, both the Republican chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Democratic chair of the House Judiciary Committee said they would not support impeaching Kavanaugh. Nora. Jan Crawford with that news. Thank you. Jim, I don't think Nora's too excited about that, but nonetheless, this is a pretty big piece of information that everyone uh, who Christine Blasey Ford said was at the party, not only wouldn't confirm it, but none of them have any recollection of anything.
0: First of all, I guess I should be glad that Nora O'Donnell didn't go with the Brady Bunch, sure, Jan, Skeptical response meme there. So two or three thoughts kind of come to mind to this. And here, you know, if I had said to you, hey, there's a new book coming out about the Kavanaugh fight. And one of the revelations is that somebody heard from somebody else back when they were in college, they kind of sort of remember, it was a party, there was a lot of drinking, nobody's really 100% sure, they're a little bit fuzzy, but somebody heard from their brothers, ex-wives, you know, (coughs) third cousin twice removed, that uh, Kavanaugh did something really gross at that party. Well, we heard a lot of that (laughs) during the hearings. You might be like, eh, you know. What else is new? Or you could say, hey, remember Leland Pizer, the the one who uh, Christine Blasey Ford said was one of the witnesses, one of the people at the party? Pizer not only says she doesn't remember anything, we probably remember that from the Kavanaugh thing, but she says people pressured her to change her answers to say that she supported uh, Christine Blasey Ford and remembered things that didn't happen. Which one strikes you as bigger news? That second one makes you say holy smoke whoa my goodness that's not good right people are pressuring her to lie that's you know that's big news that's that's the headline that's something we're like whoa okay something shady's going on here i know we have two sides with conflicting arguments but one side like threatening people if they don't change their story and it's kind of interesting here because this is not the first time this sort of thing has happened greg People probably recognize the name of David Brock, uh, the head of Media Matters for America, big fan of Hillary Clinton. Uh, People say, other Democrats who have to work with him say every time they meet him, it's kind of like meeting the Will Ferrell character from Zoolander. You keep expecting him to be petting some cat and, you know, acting like this complete weirdo. But Brock, way back when, he was a writer for the American Spectator, and he wrote a book about Anita Hill. And apparently he had great sources on the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. They had done a lot of digging and, inf- and, and you know, investigation of Anita Hill. made a whole bunch of stuff that hadn't come out during the hearing to make you say, oh, you didn't believe Anita Hill before? Here's even more reasons to say, OK, I don't know if I buy this story of Clarence Thomas doing these terrible things. So he puts that out. It's out of the book. And the book makes a huge splash. And like, wow, this is a re- this is the real inside scoop about Anita Hill. Uh, conservatives love it, et cetera, et cetera. David Brock gets a second book deal, and this time it's for a book about Hillary Clinton. Now, you think people didn't like Anita Hill back in the early 90s. Here we are, it's Clinton's first term, the Hillary care thing crashes and burns. The market is ready for a really good, juicy story. give, Give me the real scoop on Hillary Clinton. Except this time, David Brock doesn't have the Senate Judiciary Committee kind of doing the legwork for him. And he does his investigating, but you know he can 't find a ton of new stuff um, about Hillary Clinton, so he writes this book, and it's it 's very different from what everybody expected. A lot of people were disappointed by it. There was almost this quasi sympathetic look of Hillary Clinton being this um, if not a pawn by Bill Clinton, but but somebody who kind of get you know that Bill Clinton kept messing up her life, and uh, most of what she had done wrong was a reflection of how he had kind of dragged her down this path. She didn't want to go. And it flops. And this is one of the things that led to David Brock completely changing his viewpoint on things. Now, let's say you're a New York Times reporter and you cover the Kavanaugh hearings. Kavanaugh gets confirmed, but you're like, you know, there's, there's more meat on this phone. This this was a big controversy. There's a more of a story to tell. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the real story and I'm going to write a book about this. And you get the big book contract, but you don't find, you know, Kavanaugh, being the Texas Chainsaw Massacre perpetrator. Uh, you don't find the dirt. In fact, apparently in other interviews, they've said everybody they've spoken to talks about what an exemplary judge he is, how terrific he treats people, how you know nothing in his professional life matches this story of, you know, sounding like John Belushi in Animal House in some of these stories from back then. So one of two things. Even the stories are not true. Uh, they, as he said, I like beer. You know, Kavanaugh was a bit of a party guy back then, but they're wild exaggerations. Or maybe he was every bit as bad as everybody says he is. And somehow, you know, somewhere along the line, he completely turned his life around. Stranger things have happened. But if you're the New York Times reporter, nobody wants you to write a book saying, hey, Brett Kavanaugh is actually a good guy. There's reasons to not believe uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Nobody's going to want to buy that book. I mean, the conservatives might, but you don't want to sell to that audience. You want to sell to the New York Times readership audience. So you write the story. You have to write whether or not the facts are there. And then in the back chapter, you say, oh, by the way, everybody who's ever worked with a guy says he you know, walks on water and is the best guy ever. He turns water into beer.
2: Yeah, that's amazing what the mainstream media will consider the headline. So, again, kudos to Jan Crawford when virtually everybody else in the mainstream media missed the actual headline from this book and uh, what we've learned that's actually new from the Kavanaugh saga from a year ago. All right, well, let's talk about some more good news, and that's 4Patriots, where you can find them at 4 slash martini and find all the great deals, including getting a free solar panel with the purchase of the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. satisfaction guaranteed. Visit 4patriots.com slash martini to get your Patriot Power Generator 2000X with the free solar panel included. Plus, get free shipping on orders over $97. Save more and get peace of mind now by going to the number 4patriots.com slash martini. That's 4patriots.com slash martini. All right, let's move on to our second good martini, Jim. It was back in June when we had the first debate where Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden. She saw a little bit of a poll bump after that. And then it was late July in the second debate in Detroit on CNN where Tulsi Gabbard really went after the prosecutorial record of Kamala Harris. She wasn't really all that well prepared for it. And it looks like she's taken quite a hit. Uh, This is actually Kamala Harris right after that CNN debate dismissing the attack from Tulsi Gabbard. And the reason she says it needs to be dismissed is wonderful, given today's news. This is going to sound immodest, but I'm obviously a top-tier candidate. And so I did expect that I would be on the stage and take hits tonight because there are a lot of people that are trying to make the stage for the next debate. Wait, what was that, Senator Harris? I'm obviously a top-tier candidate. (laughs) A top-tier candidate. Well, maybe you were in the present (laughs) tense at the end of July. You're not anymore. Three different polls out in the last couple of days, Jim. Two of them just out Wednesday morning. One economist Yuga. We've got Joe Biden at 26, Elizabeth Warren at 21, Bernie Sanders at 14, Pete Buttigieg at nine, Kamala Harris at six. Then we've got Survey USA. We've got Biden 33, Warren 19, Sanders 17, Harris six. Let's go down to NBC News, Wall Street Journal. Biden 31, Warren 25, Sanders 14, Buttigieg seven. Harris, 5. And then you're thinking, oh, well, it's national. It's the the early states and the critical states that really matter. What about Delegate Rich, California, where she's from? Yeah, that's not good either for her. Biden, 26. Sanders, 26. Warren, 20. Yang, 7. Harris, 6. So, Jim... I don't know exactly what we chalked this up to, but uh, she's been all over the map on a lot of things, kind of like uh, Beto O'Rourke also trying to leap at the most extreme position you could possibly take him with the gun confiscation, which she has also bought into now. And now she's uh, leading the charge for Brett Kavanaugh impeachment because there's perhaps a trail of crumbs there, although, as we've just pointed out in the last three days, there's really not. So what do you make of the Democratic voters turning their back on Kamala Harris? You know, Greg, I want to take a moment and just say to the listeners,
0: you hopefully have been listening to us for a long time, and you have a sense of our personalities. if it's your first time listening, welcome. My guess is, up until now, you've thought, boy, that Greg Corumbus guy sounds like a really nice guy, really warm and friendly, and no no, uh, no cruelty in his heart or something. Listeners, did you hear that joy in Greg's voice <laughs> as he played that top-tier candidate soundbite twice, just to twist the knife a little bit, and, you know? Dip it in lemon juice first and then really stick it. Yeah, um, I, I heard that in your voice, Greg. Um, and good for you. You're, look, you, you almost could see the gods of politics. For the moment she said that, I'm a top tier candidate. Just kind of rubbing their hands together and saying, Karma, you're up, go hit her. This is kind of surprising because in a way, I, you know, at the very beginning of the process, you know, you have, who's, who's likely to be the, uh, the Democratic nominee? I think, you know, early on, it's like, okay Kamala Harris probably has, you know, one of the best shots at this um, for reasons of demographics. Being from California doesn't hurt the right kind of biography. You know that this was what the Democratic Party uh, in the Trump era was going to be looking for. Right. You know, woman senator. She was by a lot of measuring sticks, the ideal progressive prosecutor for, you know, because she went after big corporations and, and, you know, she talks a good game. Yeah, again, you know, Tulsi Gabbard gutted her like a fish, uh, but I also think there's a certain. Um, we talked about how cloying her her effort was in that last uh, last debate. It's not like we've seen a counter strike or an ability to defend those five bad decisions from her prosecutorial term, and you know maybe there were some folks who looked at the way she went after Biden uh, and didn't like it, uh, particularly the fact became clear that she wasn't calling for busing or anything like that maybe there's some people who are like "Ooh, she's really tough and then the more they thought about it it seemed kind of ridiculous to go after joe biden on something like this considering how he had been vice president for eight years and nobody in the democratic party really had much of a problem with it at all as i said there's you know there's a lot of things about this this uh primary that aren't fun to cover and you know spending hours watching these debates and listening to say the same things over and over again but there is something kind of fun about watching. These once promising democratic figures crash and burn, generally out of a lack of self awareness of how they are seen to others. And you mentioned Beto, uh, Julian Castro. There's a new uh, Iowa poll out today that has him at zero. Guess the slam on Joe Biden didn't go well with elderly <laughs> voters. Who saw that coming? Uh, we talked about Kirsten Gillibrand. You know. There were a whole bunch of Democratic candidates who were convinced they were hot stuff. And not only was winning over a chunk of the electorate uh, tougher than they thought, not only was standing on a debate stage tougher than they thought, not only was qualifying for a debate stage tougher than they thought, um, you know, that, that uh, people are going to make a lot of comparisons of Kamala Harris to Icarus. You know, she, she flew too close to the sun. You know, she, uh, she, she was top tier candidate after that first debate. And then she lost it. And I think what's kind of striking is how fast she's fallen, how how significantly she's fallen, and that it is fairly consistently. It's not like it's here or there. And the whole, you know, if she really is down behind Yang. To quote the wise philosopher Bill Paxton, um, game over, man, game over. You know, that's, <laughs> uh, this is her home because there was an argument. Going, and I wrote about this in the corner yesterday. There was a school of thought you heard saw from some political correspondents covering the Democratic primary that, look, she's actually got this thing figured out. She's not a natural fit for Iowa, so she's not going to spend a lot of time trying to work, do it there. She's not really a natural fit for New Hampshire. She'll probably do a little better there, but you know, she's focusing on her home state because her home state's got nearly 500 delegates. So everybody's fighting over you know 40 delegates in, in Iowa or you know 50 delegates there and 40 delegates in New Hampshire. Like that. You know, California's got 500. If you get half your home state, which is you know reasonable within the realm of possibility, you got 250 right? You know, why waste time on these little piddling states here and there when you can clean up on the big ones and be in a much better shape when all is said and done and convention rolls around? Well, that only works if you do really well in California. And the fact that her home state is so uninterested in her, and by the way, like a month ago, she was at 17%. So I mean, this has happened really fast, uh, is really pretty striking. And I think indicates that whether she deserves it or not, I think Democratic uh, primary voters look at her and say, you know what, She's going to be up there on the debate against stage and people are just going to cringe at the possibility of her running the country, you know, running police raids on everyone uh, for four years.
2: Absolutely. And it's probably a little bit frustrating in addition to the fact that she's tanking in the polls now. But the fact that California moved up their primary date to early March, I think it is now. So it's a much more relevant and, and critical part of the primary process. Usually it's at the end. And by that time, we've got a presumptive nominee. And so I think she was counting on that to be a really big part of her early push towards the nomination, and that's just not going to be the case. In fact, I think the last time the California primary was really decisive was when Senator Palmer locked up the Democratic nomination back in uh, 2001,
0: 2002. Yeah, you know, look, (laughs) it's interesting. Every four years we have this discussion, you know, listeners in Iowa, listeners in New Hampshire, forgive me. Um, But those of us who don't live in those states kind of get resentful of the fact that you guys get to pick first. And, you know, by the time it rolls around to these other states, half the field is gone. Because the farmers didn't like them, and apparently they weren't tough enough on the Canadian syrup smugglers who are, you know, menacing New Hampshire and stuff like that. You know, South Carolina, Nevada, you know, why did things not get done on ethanol in this country, Greg? Because Iowa has the Iowa caucuses and they go first. That's why. Um, this is, you know, there, there's, there's frustration in the, in, in the land over which states get to go first. And so the idea of, you know, a state like California, bigger, more populous, more diverse has a certain logic to it um but my guess is that uh, it will not actually have dramatic change and you know we talk about this every four years but very little actually changes
1: judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa
2: take it easy judy <laughs>
1: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All
2: right. Let's move on to our final martini now. And we mentioned the fact that Andrew Yang is actually leading Kamala Harris in California. But uh, Andrew Yang... He's got some problems with the SJW crowd. The social justice warriors not too pleased with some of his self-deprecating humor as an Asian man up on the debate stage and elsewhere. Here's the one from last Thursday in Houston. I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. I'm Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. And here's one he had on MSNBC not too long ago.
0: My slogan, well, that the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. Math is actually an acronym for Make America Think Harder.
2: Ali Velshi actually chuckling along because, you know, it's kind of funny, but not to the scolds on the left, Jim. Vox has a whole think piece now that tells us why this is such a terrible thing. There's a major reason why Yang's broader use of stereotypes is so harmful. They help reaffirm a trope about Asian-Americans commonly known as the model minority myth, a term that's pretty much as offensive as it sounds. As the name suggests, this myth, which has previously been used to treat Asian-Americans as a monolithic group, implies that Asians are fixated on school and certain professions and is damaging for a lot of reasons. It not only obscures the diversity within the Asian-American community, it also is intended to demean other minority groups. And at the end, it says this contradiction that uh, Yang thinks it could lighten everybody up on stereotypes. But it also is doing a lot of damage. This contradiction speaks to a core tension in his candidacy. The degree of representation he's embodying for Asian Americans on the national stage has been significant and inspiring. But the messages he's sending voters aren't celebrating his identity so much as using it as a punchline. Jim, if stereotypes like, hey, we're really ambitious and we uh, like to succeed and we think education's important. Boy, that's really damaging. Yeah, I was going to say, Greg, because anybody ever, you know, you're a handsome man. <laughs> There's a totally normal opening to an answer. Um,
0: you're a handsome man. But has anyone ever called you a model? No. Is model minority really <laughs> as insulting as it sounds? Model is saying you're, you're the best. You're the role model. You are what everybody else should try to be like, what everybody should kind of aspire to be like. I'm not Asian American, as people have probably figured out. You know, I suppose you could be an Asian American and say, oh, God, I hate it when people call us the model minority. I hate it when they think we're so great. I hate it when they say that we're, you know, look, I I guess I can understand where that's coming from. For a long time, American culture has operated on this unofficial rule that you can make fun of the group that you're a part of, but it's kind of rude and kind of insulting and kind of not nice to make fun of other groups. This is how Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock get away with what they say, but other folks don't. This is why they couldn't do, for example, say Jeff Foxworthy's routine. Why do audiences full of people from the South and Midwest laugh at, if your family tree doesn't fork, you might be a redneck. (laughs) Uh, Why do people laugh? Because Because Jeff Foxworthy's making fun of himself. If I went on to this and said, let me tell you about the Irish folks. We're born pregnant. We have preschool drinking problems. I miss my grandfather, but because he's voted in Chicago, I feel like he's never really gone. You know, you you could do those. I can do those jokes. Greg, I'm sure you could probably come up with some Greek jokes. Sure. Uh, you know, there's we. this this is the unofficial rule. Maybe it's fair. Maybe it's not. But it's the way things are. Can anyone point to anybody who's being harmed by Andrew Yang making these jokes? No. It's right? harmless I mean, like, you know, fun. Right. I cringed a bit. <laughs> You know, there's a, I, I suppose when he said the, I know a lot of doctors or something like that, but you know, all in all, look, you know, if, if this really is the biggest problem facing the country, then then we're set. We're golden. Nothing's wrong. Or the other thing is, is that if, if, if this really is a bad idea and if Asian Americans really are offended by Yang's jokes, then, then they won't support him. They, they won't vote for him. They won't donate for him. They won't say they're going to vote for him in polls. And that'll be the consequence. Again, you know, maybe there are some folks who this really is rubbing it the wrong way. I think Yang has done that calculation. And, you know, the other flip side of this is that, Greg, off the top of my head, have we had an Asian American major presidential candidate in my lifetime? Not that it's immediately coming to mind, no. Right? So this guy's a trailblazer as is. So my guess is there are probably a whole bunch of Asian Americans who are like, finally, one of us is up on that stage. And they're probably very proud of that. Say, you know, another barrier has kind of fallen. So good, you know, given, good good for you, Andrew Yang. You know, you're probably not going to become president, but you know what? You were a guy who on that first debate stage, people thought, wait, did they leave the back door open? Who is this guy? Is he giving us a sales pitch? He didn't even bring a tie. I feel like he's going to try to sell me a, a timeshare or something. He's now ahead of Kamala Harris in California. Good for you, Andrew Yang. You know, hold your head up high and, you know, write a book on the universal basic income or something like that. He'll... He'll probably be just fine. And, you know, out of all the people, things, developments in this stage, uh, in this, you know, this Democratic presidential primary, Andrew Yang making these jokes is really very far from anything people really need to worry.
2: Yeah, I just don't get it why high achieving is something to be not pointed out, even if it's kind of tongue in cheek like he did in this situation. I mean, I was in a bunch of math competitions when I was a kid. I didn't finish at the top, but I'll tell you who did. (laughs) There are Irish who can't hold their liquor.
0: Yes. Asian Americans who are bad at math exist. Right. I'm sure they're out there. It was. I guess the other thing, is when people say, oh, these stereotypes, uh, isn't it terrible that people think that you have these positive traits? I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I, maybe you disappoint them in some way or something like that. But, you know... In a world where like there's still genuine hatred and there's still where, like, you know, there are still people burning crosses and stuff like that. Man, this stuff
2: certainly feels like minor things to worry about, all things considered. There's probably Greeks also that have no ancestors or relatives that ran restaurants. Not my family. I, I to
0: say, <laughs> you, will you forgive me in advance, Greg? Sure. There are probably some Greeks who have, who have entirely complete sets of plates. <laughs> See, Greg has a sense of humor. I offer you one free Irish joke in return. (laughs) Part of my heritage is German. So if you want to make, you know, if you want to make a joke on that front, you can. But just remember, it has to be disciplined and well organized.
2: Oh, no No worries. I would uh, I would hesitate to make a joke about the Irish because it might bomb. And uh, that would be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) See, America, we can work out. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?